We are in a moment of transition right now from a business leadership standpoint. And I think that the pandemic really shed a light on the importance of some skills and strategies that women tend to have. Right now, we're in another moment of transition where we're facing economic uncertainty, recession, or whatever we want to call it. But there's certainly more economic uncertainty ahead. And I think we're kind of in a new phase of consistent uncertainty. I'm Janet Ioli, and you're listening to Power Presence Academy, practical wisdom for leaders. If you're looking for leadership mentoring, advice, or just a dose of inspiration, I've got you covered. Join me as I share leadership tips and lessons of experience from experts and from executives at the top of their game. This is your go-to place for all things leadership. It doesn't have to be lonely at the top. Let's go. So it's my pleasure to have Julia Burston with us today. Julia has over two decades of experience as a business reporter and is currently CNBC's senior media and technology reporter. She's interviewed thousands of successful leaders and in the process has become a passionate advocate for gender equity and leadership. So Julia shares her thoughts and findings regarding women in leadership in her new book, When Women Lead, What They Achieve, Why They Succeed, and What We Can Learn From Them. So I am delighted to have you, Julia, today just to talk about women, talk about leadership, and talk about your book. Thank you so much for having me here. It is truly a treat and an honor. So just to get started, I always ask the same question because I think people who are listening always have this idea when they hear of an expert coming on or if they hear of some title, they're wondering, wow, you know, how did this person get there? (laughs) So I always ask for the story behind the title. So if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little bit about your leadership journey and then how you got to be where you are today. Well, it's funny when you say the story behind the title, I was so fraught. (laughs) It was so fraught figuring out how to title my book, When Women Lead. But my journey, I feel like in a lot of ways, is very straightforward. I've only had two jobs in my whole 22-year-long career. Straight out of college, I was a reporter for Fortune magazine. I was there for six years. And during that time, I became a contributor to CNN and CNN Headline News. And then from there, I was hired for a full-time job on air as an on-air reporter for CNBC. And I've been there for 16 years, which seems crazy. In that time, I've been very lucky to get to interview lots of amazing leaders, CEOs, founders. And one of my favorite projects is I created this thing called the CNBC Disruptor 50 list. We've had 10 years so far. We're now doing our 11th year. And I really wanted to find a way for CNBC, which is so focused on big public companies, to give a window into the technologies, the startups that are going to become the next generation of big public companies or are already disrupting the big public companies. So I created this format for the Disruptor 50 to do that, to look at these fast-growing startups. And through that list and through those startups, I had the opportunity to interview very impressive, innovative, scrappy entrepreneurs, and some of whom were women. And those women really inspired me to take a deeper look at female leadership. Wow. Okay, first of all, how did you come up with the idea to actually write a book about it? And second of all, what did you learn from all these interviews? 
So I've always loved business books. I've been reading business books since I started as a young reporter when I was 21 years old. And it was always a dream to write one, but I knew I would have to have a topic that I really felt passionately about and also that I would want to live with for years. Because when you're writing a book, it's like you're living with this this living, breathing thing and you can't ever escape it. And it's all you think about all of the time. It's all you eat, sleep and think about. So I wanted to find something also that was positive and inspirational. And, um, you know, there are enough negative news stories out there. And I spend many days telling negative stories on TV if that's what's happening in the news. So I wanted to find something that would be positive and also that I would really be eager to dig into. And so what I found in the business world is that there were a couple of things going on at the same time. One was that in 2017, 2018, there was this Me Too Times Up movement. And it was all about focusing on what men were doing wrong. And many CEOs who I used to interview frequently were fired or they left their jobs. And it was this important moment, I think, for American culture and, and American business. But what I saw was being lost in that is that we were talking about what men were doing wrong, but we weren't talking about what women were doing right. And increasingly, I was seeing these amazing female leaders who were leading differently. They had less access to capital. Female founders draw just 3% or less of all venture capital dollars. Women of color draw a tiny percentage of that. And they had less access to capital, but at the same time, they were succeeding in very different ways. They were scrappy and innovative. They were thinking more about the long term. They were more likely to consider purpose along with profits. And I just found them personally very inspiring. And there was something about the contrast between these amazing innovative thinkers and their lack of access to venture capital that was this weird disconnect to me. And it didn't make sense. And I thought that if more people knew about those numbers, about how little access to capital women had, and all of the data about how female-led companies outperform, then these women could offer a kind of narrative, a story that would help bridge those two disconnected facts. And I was just really excited to talk to these amazing women. And I was very lucky to get to do these interviews during the pandemic. And I ended up interviewing 120 people, mostly on Zoom or in some other video format during the pandemic. And it really... Was it was really a gift to be able to talk to all these amazing leaders. Oh, I can imagine. And I also can imagine that, and well, I know because I read most of your book, but I can also imagine that you found some similarities in between them. Absolutely. So I started off by wanting to tell the stories of women who had defied those odds, the less than 3% access to venture capital. I mean, look, being an entrepreneur in general is hard. By many measures, about 90% of all entrepreneurs fail at their, their ventures within a decade. So these were women who were really able to defy the odds. And I wanted to understand what skills, what strategies they were deploying in order to do that. And the more people I interviewed, the more I found these key commonalities. So after every interview, I would go back through the transcript and I would pick out some key themes from each woman who I'd interviewed. And I found some, though everyone was very different, though every leader leads in her unique way, I was really struck by some key themes that emerged. And I would say overarching themes were humility and also a growth mindset. And I sort of came to understand growth mindset is this balance between humility and confidence. The humility to understand that you don't know everything and the confidence to say, I can learn it. I can change, I can learn, I can adapt, I can figure out this new industry. So these were common themes. And I was really struck by the number of women who took on entirely new areas, tried to invent new models, just felt like because they did not match the pattern of what CEOs traditionally look like, that they weren't constrained by those rules, either in the way they approached the business model or in the way they led themselves. 
And a number of these women said, hey, I already didn't meet their expectations. So I felt like I could just do things my own way. I was never going to meet their expectations. So I could be liberated to approach reinventing business or approach my way of managing my team in my own unique way because I wasn't going to fit their stereotypes no matter what. So I think those were a couple of the fascinating things. And then in terms of the trends that I found across these female leaders, what's really important for me to emphasize is these are ways that women tend to lead. These are things that are socialized. Men can adopt these winning leadership strategies too. Women are socialized to lead this way, but men should be taking a lesson from them. A communal leadership style, women are more likely to lead by pulling on perspectives from across their organization rather than a top-down, more hierarchical approach. Women are more likely to lead with empathy. And I've had to correct many men that I've been talking about this with over the past couple of months, but empathy is not the same thing as compassion or kindness. Empathy can lead to it, but empathy can also be deployed very strategically. If you can have a better sense of what someone is thinking or feeling based on their presentation, then you'll be a better negotiator. You'll be better at motivating your team. And I think that a lot of these skills, whether it's empathy or vulnerability or gratitude, have been lumped in with this concept of like soft skills. And I think that diminishes them. I don't use the term soft skills in my book because I think it's really about understanding personal traits and strengths and deploying them strategically for business gains. It's not about anything soft. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a mathematician, either it was today or yesterday, and we were talking about this very, very topic about the soft skills, right? And that... A lot of folks who come from the technical area are conditioned to think, oh, you know, those are the hard skills, whatever I'm competent at, whereas the soft skills are what are really, really the harder skills. <laughs> and we, we had a whole conversation about that. And so talk to me a little bit about, Julia, when you think about the biggest challenges you think women leaders face and going into the future as well, because, you know, there's the present and then there's where we're headed. And what do you think some of the challenges are now going forward? I think that the current challenge is the same challenge that we've been dealing with for so long, which is this vicious cycle where women are less likely to be CEOs. So people assume that women aren't good at being CEOs. And there's, by the way, there's data showing that the less frequently you see someone in a role, the more you assume someone like that is not going to be good at that role. There have been various studies about it. One of my favorite ones was about male and female jockeys. I quote it in the book. It's a really fun articulation of this sort of social phenomenon. But that's human instinct. You know, you can call it unconscious bias. You could call it pattern matching. I prefer the term pattern matching because I think it's a more sort of clear explanation of what's happening. People try to fit the world, new people, new ideas into existing patterns. And male, white male CEO is the dominant pattern of leadership now. And so I think it's hard to break out of that, especially when women are in such a tiny minority in leadership roles. Currently, women are about 10% of the Fortune 500. That is an all-time high. It's up from about 8% last year. It's up from about 4% about a decade earlier. So the numbers are tiny. And I think that representation matters, not just for women, not just because we want young women to say, oh, I can be that. But for men, men need to see, oh, women are leaders. I should consider the young women who are working for me as future leaders because I see that that's what women can do. So I think that these stereotypes and archetypes are incredibly powerful and it's very hard from a sociological standpoint to break free from them. And I think that this impacts so many different things along the hiring ladder and there's some great data out. I would say some thoughtful data out from McKinsey and Lead In, but there's this study that came out in October and it shows men and women enter the workforce relatively equal numbers, if not more women in certain fields, but at every level of promotion, 
white men get more promotions than women, women of color, or men of color. And so these pipelines decrease. So by the time you get to the C-suite, there are just so many fewer women who could be considered for that top role. So I think it's a very much a structural issue. I think if you look in the entrepreneurial space, it's complicated again by the, the tech VC ecosystem, but it's a very complex problem that needs a very nuanced solution, both in terms of corporate America and in terms of the power of tech entrepreneurs. I mean, think about it. We've never had a female founder or CEO at the level of a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, someone who's considered a visionary leader. The one example of that is Elizabeth Holmes, and she was a spectacular failure. And that impacts the way people think about leadership. So I think it's a complex problem, but I think it needs to be addressed from all these different angles. And I hope that women can understand the research, understand the data, understand landmines that they might be facing, and also use that knowledge so they don't take things personally, but just understand that this is person's having a reaction to me because I'm not fitting a stereotype or because I'm doing something differently. And then you can separate the valuable feedback from the feedback that might be tied up in, in stereotype. There's so much in what you just said. <laughs> you know, you're talking about the archetypes, you're talking about stereotypes, and there's so much to unpack there. And as I think about all of the things you just said, one of the things that comes up for me, you mentioned the McKinsey report, right? That just came out about, it was 2022, right? Yeah, and, it was um, like, yeah, the, work, the women in workplace report that yeah. just came out. And one of the things that was in that same report was about what they coined the great breakup. Yes. Right? That so many women are in droves leaving their jobs and they're going to another job. So and these are like, women at the VP level and above, senior women. Exactly. And, and some of them are not going to other big companies. Some of them may retire. Some of them may be solo consultants. I think it's still unclear where all those women are going to go. Yeah, but the question is, what's the great breakup? Why is there a great breakup? Yeah. Or I think why is because a lot of women are frustrated by what I see as a disconnect between the perception and progress. It's 2023. Oh my gosh, the world has changed. It's been so long since Me Too Time's Up. All these companies have women's groups and DEI groups. And it's something that gender equity is something that companies have very publicly committed to. So that's the perception. And then the reality is, it's like, well, there aren't that many women in the C-suite. Women aren't being named CEO in any much greater number than they were a couple of years ago. And like the reality is like there hasn't been that much progress. It's a big, yeah. it's, a, it's a frustrating disconnect. And I think a lot of women are saying, hey, I know what I'm capable of. There's great research I cite in my book about how when women are older than 40, they women enter the workforce less confident than men. Men enter the workforce far more confident. Men's confidence declines. Women's confidence increases. It crisscrosses around age 40. So I think a lot of these women who are VP level and above are saying, hey, I really know what I'm capable of. And I know and understand the full depth and breadth of what I'm contributing to the situation here at work. I'm not getting credit for my work. I'm out of here. So I think that the pandemic really pushed a lot of women to their breaking point. Many women had to drop out of the workforce for personal reasons. A lot of them are back based on the BLS statistics. But I think now a lot of women are saying, what is really important to me? Where am I going to be most valued and have the biggest impact? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and again, there's so much complexity in in this. It's not an easy solution. And it obviously we've been wrestling with this for, for decades now. But one of the things that you mentioned that makes me ponder a little bit and makes me think is, you know, just thinking about the changes that have happened. So a lot of these changes are 
you know, what you just said, right? Diversity programs, women in leadership programs. You know, I know I've run some of these programs, but the systemic changes haven't happened, right? So changing, I mean, because some of these systems weren't created by women. And so therein lies the complexity of it. And so in order for real systems change to take place, do you have any thoughts about that in terms of how that needs to to shift a little bit? Well, it's interesting. I just had Reshma Sujani who wrote a great book called Pay Up. I believe it's the name of one. She's written a couple of books. One of them is called Pay Up. She created this thing called the Marshall Plan for Moms. And she is a big proponent of pay equity. This is what she's devoted her, her professional life to. And her concept of the Marshall Plan for Moms, and this is something that other women have collaborated on as well, is that you really need better childcare systems to support women in order to have gender equity in the workplace. And that the U.S. is decades behind other countries, uh, such economically advanced countries, where there are far better systems, sort of safety nets to support women when they take time off to have kids, to give them much longer parental leave, to give men parental leave. And so sort of systemically that there is a, a disconnect between what the U.S. is capable of economically and this gender gap because women are sort of not being given the same opportunities. So I think it's really interesting to think about it from that standpoint. One thing from a sort of regulatory standpoint that I'm quite inspired by is this idea of pay transparency law. And this is a relatively new thing. There's some new pay transparency laws that have been enacted in California, Colorado, New York. I believe as of last count, something like a quarter or a fifth of all Americans are covered by these pay transparency laws. And it basically means that companies need to disclose the pay ranges for different jobs. Yes, there are ways you could work around this if you were a company and really wanted to pay someone differently, pay someone more or less. But for the most part, I think it's a good thing for companies to need to think about these things. What are my pay practices? Am I paying people equitably? And just to force that that mental process among corporate America giant companies, I think is very valuable. I do think the problem is less about entry-level pay and more about promotion and men tend to get promoted much faster which many people have tied back to the fact that men are requesting promotions more frequently. But I do think this pay transparency law has a potential to at least help close some gender pay gaps. In terms of the rest of the structural issues, there are these questions about healthcare, you know, and parental leave. And then there are also sort of what happens socially at home. And there's a great book written by a friend of mine, Eve Rodsky. Her book is called Fair Play. And that's about helping working parents. Like, I mean, it's for anybody, but it's been very helpful for working parents, including me and my husband, to think about dividing up some of the invisible labor that goes into having kids and working and, and doing all of the things. And, and I think it's interesting to see how all of these social and cultural and business forces intersect and, and really to have a conversation, whether it's in a startup or corporate America, about the value of diversity, the importance, the billions of dollars in GDP that are going to be lost if women are not participating in the workforce. Yeah. I love you bring that up about roles because that's, I mean, if we have a tradition of a certain role and the traditional roles, even if those things have shifted and changed, there's still the expectations that are still there, right? And so without, yeah. without shifting those things, like you said, you know, the division of labor in, in the house, you know, how does that work? Whose role is what? All of those things. So those are fantastic points. So let me shift for a second. By the way, the pay transparency, you know, that's a whole other topic. I think that's such a great one that you bring up. Because by the way, I think there's some controversial laws. Like there's a lot of controversy about whether a company should be mandated to have board diversity. So I understand the controversy around that, though companies should see that companies that do have diverse boards perform better financially. Right. So I think they should want to have diversity on their boards. But one thing I like about the pay transparency is it seems like it's unilaterally valuable. 
it doesn't seem like it should be controversial, which is one reason right. why I, that is an example of a good kind of regulation. Yeah. So let me ask you this, and you know, in our limited time here, what advice would you give to women leaders and organizations that want to maximize their impact just based on all this research that you did? Their impact internally or their impact externally? Both. I think one thing I've seen across the board is that there's great value in using data to mitigate the negative impact of bias. And I was talking about pay equity with a former female CEO of a publicly traded company. And she was saying, you know what's crazy? She was like, this is crazy. I thought I'm a female CEO. I have a lot of female managers. I thought we were gonna be great at pay equity. I thought we would have this figured out. But she went back and looked at the numbers because they were like, well, we might as well do an audit. Right. And they found she found that even her female managers were paying the male employees more than the female employees. Mm-hmm. And she was horrified. Because if there is a culture that would be more conducive to pay equity, right. it's her culture. Female CEO, female managers, very good gender equity in, the, in terms of the number of people holding different roles. But they didn't have the pay equity figured out. And I think it's really important for everyone to think about implementing systems, processes, to just make sure that things are equitable. And I think it it benefits everybody. So whether it's pay equity or promotion equity, I did a story about how PayPal realized it didn't have a pay equity problem, it had a promotion problem, it was promoting men much faster. And so they put in a system to evaluate people at the same frequency. So I think it's things like that in which everyone needs to take a step and say, what are we doing that we could do better? What are we doing that we're assuming we're good at, but everyone needs to check themselves against the data? The other thing I would say is that female leaders tend to invest more in diversity and also in mentorship, both formally through official corporate systems, but also informally. And that's great. I think it's really important, though, that young people get mentored both by men and by women. And I always tell when young people ask me for advice about how to get a mentor, they really want a female mentor. I say, no, get a male mentor, get a mentor who's going to invest in you and in your success. And frankly, there aren't enough women in senior positions for them to mentor all the young women. So I think that mentorship needs to be diverse and sort of distributed and all of those different things. So I think really understanding the power of mentorship and sponsorship and investing in diversity is something that female leaders and leaders of any gender should be really focused on. And I'm going to ask you this question here that is coming to my head because I think just where you sit also in the job that you're doing that you may have any, you may have a thought on this because I hear from a lot, I work with a lot of male executives as well, right? Men and women. And I hear a lot of men now in this environment say, you know, I don't want to mentor a woman. You know, I, I don't want to, not because of the equity issues, et cetera. It's because I'm afraid. Yeah. I'm afraid because of this whole Me Too movement that now it's like, you know, I don't want to be alone. If I say the wrong thing or if I do the wrong thing, I don't know if you're hearing the same thing, but I'm hearing you it. You know, in I, I have heard a little bit of that. And I've actually seen a number of CEOs or leaders put systems into place to try to mitigate that. Mm-hmm. Um, because on one hand, you don't want to be put in an awkward situation where you're accused of of doing something or you're you say the wrong thing, but you also don't want to not mentor women because of that, right? That would be terrible. So I've heard of a number of CEOs where they don't have drinks or dinners, they only have breakfast and lunches. They do the breakfast and lunches at the company cafeteria or in a regular restaurant. So there's no sense of it being inappropriate. It's not like they're taking someone out for late night drinks. And this idea of just systematizing it, I remember one CEO, he said, I just have five breakfasts a week with people I'm mentoring with. It's always the same format. Some are women, some are men. I keep it very simple. 
I'm not playing golf with the men because that would be unfair to the women I'm not playing golf with and just trying to systematize it. And it's again, back to putting in systems. Systems that, by the way, will benefit women who may not want to go out for late night drinks because they might have other priorities. So I think that's the solution is just making it consistent and not consistent like take everyone out for drinks, but make it consistent like have breakfast and lunches or have a standing 3 p.m. coffee date in the Starbucks downstairs that just avoids that as an issue. Yeah, great. Great advice. So what final words of wisdom would you give from your book or from the research you did to anybody listening today? There are women and men listening to this podcast and listening to what we're talking about today. So what final advice would you give? I would give this advice particularly to the men. And I think this is particularly important for the men, but I think it's valuable for everyone. We are in a moment of transition right now from a business leadership standpoint. And I think that the pandemic really shed a light on the importance of some skills and strategies that women tend to have. Right now, we're in another moment of transition where we're facing economic uncertainty, recession or whatever we want to call it. But there's certainly more economic uncertainty ahead. And I think we're kind of in a new phase of consistent uncertainty, whether it's war or pandemic or new (laughs) waves or economic challenges. This is a, a phase of uncertainty. One thing is clear. Employees need to be managed differently than they've been managed before. And the pandemic showed the value of being empathetic and vulnerable when you're dealing with a dispersed and diverse employee base. And I think all leaders, male and female, could take a page from some of the strategies and some of the approaches I write about in the book. I also think that the pandemic and where we are right now shed a light on the importance of this idea of communal leadership that no one knows all the answers alone in a corner office anymore because the landscape is so volatile and constantly changing. And everyone would benefit from, A, a divergent approach to leadership, taking the time to pull the threads and ask the tangential questions, to take the time to understand the whole landscape, which is something that female leaders are more likely to do, and also to pull in from perspectives from across an organization, to take that communal approach, understand that the people who are on the ground there in Atlanta are going to have a totally different answer to your question than the people on the ground in Seattle or the people in Austin. And your job as a leader is not to tell them what to do, but to learn from them and then come up with a solution that's the best solution for the company. So really thinking about leadership as a learning job as well as a just sort of dictating job, a teaching job. And I think that the pandemic shed a light on that. And now is a great opportunity for everyone to be deploying some of these new skills because it's a crazy new world that we live in. People need to be adaptable and flexible and constantly learning. Wow. What a great way to end this. And I will tell you, I love the way you talk about the dictating versus the <laughs> the dictating versus the communal leadership. Because I wonder if it ever was a dictating job. That's the big question, right? If it ever Well it's funny because I've been talking a lot yeah. about how when I when I entered the workforce in two thousand the Jack Welch DE model was all anyone wanted to talk about. Six Sigma, right. you fired bomb 10%, a lot about like learning to delegate. And I just think that leadership fads go in waves and ultimately everyone would be better off if they ditched the fads and just figured out what was most effective for them in that moment. Love it. Thank you so much, my wife, for being here today. And I really appreciate it. And I know the listeners will appreciate hearing all your wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. And always remember this, every single moment you have a choice in what you say, what you do, 
and how you make people feel. Pause and make those choices wisely and intentionally because every single moment, those choices are who you become as a leader. See you next time.